What's up, Kairos? How are you? Good? Okay. Yeah, always asking that to a large group of people is pretty interesting. My name is Danny Householder. I'm the campus pastor here. I'm so glad that you're here tonight. Uh, whether you're with us in person, online, in Iowa City, in your room, wherever you might be, we're just so glad that we can worship together. And uh, I tell you what, we are going to continue to have some fun tonight. We are in a new series, kind of-ish. This is the second week of the series. It's called Before and After. We are asking the question, what difference does Jesus' does Jesus's resurrection make in my life? Like, does it actually do anything? And it is called Before and After. And I really hope to all that is good in the Lord above that the screens work, right? Like, they're going to work, right? Praise God. Come on, praise. I see it on the back screen. Yeah, so you guys don't see it here, but I saw it up there. So you hear me saying praise God. Come on, praise God louder and he'll provide, right? Oh, man. Okay. Well, anyway, any time that we can get the slides working would literally make me stop sweating so good. But anyway, hey, so we're in this series. It's called Before and After. We're talking about what differences Jesus' resurrection make in our life. And specifically tonight, we are going to talk about a guy named Saul whose name was turned to Paul at the moment when he encountered Jesus' resurrection because it did indeed make a really big difference in his life. And tonight's talk is called Being Better. Now, if you hear that word, being better, that term being better, that might bother you a little bit because being better sounds like just another self-help book, but I want you to pay really close attention to that title. This is not called doing better. It is different than that. So often we believe that we have to do something to be something to be better. But appropriately, someone, someone somewhere along the line called us human beings and not human doings. It is so tempting for us as humans to believe that we have to be humans doing things in order to be anything significant. But how refreshing would it be if we could just simply be humans being human? This is what God wants for our life. We get that reversed all the time. I've got to do something to be someone. But your origins come from God doing something for you and calling you something really nice before you ever did anything. In Genesis chapter 1, it says this about the way that God sees his creation, created human beings in his own image, then God looked at all, over all he had made and he saw that it was very good. Before you did anything, God called you good. So many of us think we have to do something to be good. But God says, before you've done anything at all, I'm already calling you very good. And why? It's because God has created you in his own image. He's given you his very genetics. What a confidence booster. The creator of the universe has put himself inside of you. You don't have to do something to be someone God already tells you who you are. You are his child, and you are good. So what do you do with that? That's where we start. Do you ever feel like you're doing too much? It's easy to do too much. In 2014, when I met my wife, Abby, um, I had known her for just a few weeks. And within a few weeks, we were going on our second date. And I had this big plan, right? Like, we're getting to know each other. We're trying to know each other's stories. And a big part of my life was the church that I grew up in. It's Lutheran Church of Hope. My dad's a senior pastor at Lutheran Church of Hope. He works down at our West Des Moines campus, in case you don't know that. And so it was late one night, and I'm going to take her to the church, not to get married right away, but I'm going to take her to the church. So I'm like, this is like this big, you know, part of my life, and I wanted her to see it. 
The building in West Des Moines for, uh, for Hope is this really huge, enormous space. And in the worship center, there's this catwalk. And I had this elaborate plan. I visioned it out. I'm going to do all these great things. We're going to get in the building. We're going to stand up in the catwalk. There's going to be this beautiful view from sky high. And we're going to share our first kiss. Long story short, it didn't happen. Um, thank you for the whistle. That, yeah. Never been catcalled before. Wow, that's good. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it didn't happen. And it was because I was, I was doing too much. We get to the building and the doors are locked. But I, I was, I was going to do something about that, you know. Now, rather than just go home and talk to my dad about it, I saw that there was a pipe alongside the side of the building. And I know this building so well. I know that inside the janitor's closet, closet in the ceiling, there's a hatch. And if I can climb this pipe, get on the roof, find the hatch, open the hatch, get into the janitor's closet, walk through the church, get to the main entrance, I'm going to do it, we're going to get inside. This is going to happen. I'm going to make this happen tonight. So sure enough, I start climbing the pipe. I'm thinking that I'm impressing her. And she's just staring, like, what, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm doing this for you, honey, babe. I didn't call her that until like five years later. But... <laughs> So I'm climbing, right? And eventually I like scoop my way over. I get on the building. I'm like, I'm doing this. I get to the janitor's closet hatch. I open it. I get down into the janitor's closet. It's pitch black. I'm terrified. I step on some sprinklers. It's bad. I open the door. I walk through the church. I get to the main entrance. I fly open the door and I say, woman, behold. She says, what are you doing? She asked me a really good question. She said, isn't your dad the pastor of this place? Couldn't you just ask him for the key? I mean, yeah, yeah, you got a good point. You got a good point. Uh, you want to go to the catwalk? No! <laughs> you know, it's a really good point there. I was trying to get in the church so hard that I would do anything to get in the church. To get in the church, I would have done anything to be welcome. But I wasn't welcome based off of anything I could do. I was welcome just because of whose kid I was. Well, that'll preach, right? So many times in life, we think that to be something good, we have to do something. To be welcomed in a space, we have to do something. But you have already been called good because of whose kid you are. Because you're God's kid. It's not about what you do. It's about whose kid you are. And your father says you are very good. It's hard to believe that sometimes. In the book of Acts, you heard about this guy named Saul. He had a hard time believing that. Saul would eventually, like I said, become Paul, but first he was Saul. Saul was a young man in Acts chapter 7 when we meet him. Scholars believe that he was probably about 10 years younger than Jesus. Saul was a very religious Jewish man who grew up around the temple. He's from a place called Tarsus. What we know about Tarsus is people from there were well off, extremely well educated, they were brilliant. Saul would have grown up in the temple learning from the best rabbis, learning all the best things, doing all the right stuff. And as he would grow, he learned about what you had to do to be welcomed by God. All the laws, all the rules, all the prophecies he had to memorize. 
Paul was a part of, Saul was a part of this very strict sect of Judaism where they followed all 600 plus laws that are listed throughout the Old Testament. He knew every single one of them and he followed every single one of them. This was Saul. If anyone was going to do enough to be welcomed by God, it would be Saul. But Saul was also this angry, raging man. When we meet him in Acts chapter 7, it says that he's sitting there and he's watching a man be killed and he approves of it. Why? This man's name was Stephen and he had been preaching about Jesus. Now remember, Saul is this guy who said, I will do anything and everything to be welcomed by God. So no wonder when now there are people running around talking about a peasant Jewish man named Jesus who was killed, crucified, but now resurrected from the dead. And he is this Messiah who's supposed to deliver all of God's people, all of God's people who Saul thought were just like me, the ones who follow all the rules. But they're saying he's saving all of God's people like me, the messed up ones, the imperfect ones, people from places that aren't Tarsus. People from places that didn't get to learn in the greatest temples from the best rabbis. People who didn't know all of the law. People who couldn't comprehend all the prophecies. Saul is this perfectly educated man. Not only was he so intelligent, but he could communicate it to anyone. We know that he would have grown up in the temple knowing that he would have learned Hebrew. He writes in Greek. Not only is he intelligent to hold his own with any sort of mind out there, he could even tell them about that in their own language. And now there are these people going around saying, God came to me. And he's furious about it. Back then, a lot of people hated Christians, but nobody hated them quite like, quite like Saul did. When we meet him, this young Saul is standing there approving of the death of another guy named Stephen because he's telling people, you're not good enough to get to God, but God is so good that he's crossed the universe to come to you. It's not about what you do, but about what God says you are. Paul was infuriated. The book of Acts goes on. It passes a chapter. Then Acts chapter 9, it says, Meanwhile, just normally for Paul, per usual, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and eager to kill the Lord's followers. Eager to kill people who followed Jesus. For Paul, hating, threatening, belittling, imprisoning, and killing Christians came as naturally to him as breathing. Meanwhile, this is just what Saul did. It's just part of who he was. He had this hatred. It was fueled. Because he did so much. In the book of Philippians, Saul, who would later be Paul, writes this as he reflects over the life that he lived before he encountered Jesus' resurrection, he says, I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I follow 600 plus laws. I've done it all. No one, no one does what I do. He's a very sad man, isn't he? Do you know people who are confident on the outside but broken deep inside? They kind of hate themselves. Are you somebody who's trying so hard to do things, but deep down you're afraid of who you've become, that you just hate yourself? 
Saul, later Paul, reflects on this part of his life in the book of Romans. He, talk, he just talks about how he hated himself. The trouble's not with the law. The law was fine. It's spiritual and good. The trouble's with me, for I'm too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, or I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Saul is a man on the run from his greatest doubt that God's never going to actually love him because he can't do enough to be welcomed by God. So not only does he hate himself, but he hates people who would say you can do it another way. He's done everything. He's exhausted Another part of his Jewish tradition, he was a part of the Pharisees, these extremely religious people who knew all the law, they taught all the things, they could recite all the prophecies, they believed in this Messiah who's going to come to deliver God's people, but these God's people, it would only be people like Saul, people who followed everything, right? They had this strict meditation, a strict practice, where they would deeply devote themselves to just reflecting on God's presence. There's another thing for them to do. They would dive deep into their prayer. They wouldn't say anything, but they wouldn't even necessarily listen. They'd just try to do something to be someone in front of God. And they believed that if I just think hard enough, if I just settle myself enough, if I just remember not to do the wrong stuff, if I just remove myself from reality, and I just focus hard enough, maybe, just maybe, just like the prophets in the Old Testament would see God's face, maybe, just maybe, I too will see God's face. Finally, I will do enough to be welcomed by God and I'll just see everything I ever wanted to see. Finally, that's what I can do. This was Saul. These are the things that he would do. And he'd do them to be someone, just to be welcomed by God. Do you feel this exhaustion inside of Saul? Do you feel this exhaustion inside of yourself? What are you doing to be someone? It's this never-ending race. If your entire life is about who you can become someday, everything will be defined about what you're doing now. But if your life is 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 defined by who your God is, by whose kid you are, your life can finally start. Saul so desperately wanted this. So there's Stephen there. He's preaching, right? We, back, we go back just two more chapters, one more time. It's back in Acts chapter 7. Stephen, he's preaching. He's, he's telling these people, you're not good enough to get to God, but God is so good that he's come to you. They're having enough of it. They won't hear it anymore. But then Stephen says something that just blows the bomb for people like Saul. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, knowing he's going to die, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. Look, I see the heaven opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Keep in mind, remember, Saul is standing here watching this and hearing this. And Saul... The guy who's so dedicated to what he can do to be welcomed, to be someone in front of God, just heard somebody who doesn't do the same stuff that he does claim that he has seen what Saul has dedicated his entire life to seeing. 
The text continues to say that the Pharisees, they close their ears, they begin shouting, they storm Stephen, and they finish him. They can't take that. It's amazing what envy will lead us to do. Envy, it leads to deep and dark places of anger and then broken relationships and eventually just hatred for those people that we once thought we could possibly be close with. They don't belong in my life. Starts with something just as simple as a little jealousy. But untamed, it turns into envy. And untamed, it turns into anger. And it breaks things. And it produces hatred. There's a psychologist, his name is Joseph A. Strand, and he's a doctor out of the University of Harvard, Harvard University, whatever it is. I wasn't smart enough to get in there. But he says, envy often births from two related causes. The first is seeing someone receive something that we feel incapable of achieving. The second is seeing someone receive something that we feel entitled to. Both of those things happen for Saul. He sees Stephen receive something that he never believed he could do. And he also sees Stephen receive something that he believes if anybody's entitled to it, it's him. You ever seen someone do something and you so badly want it? You ever seen someone receive something, someone just be able to be capable of something and you so badly want it, you just can't shake it? Uh, I'm going to invite my wife, Abby, to the stage. I told her I'd do this, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you guys an example of this. Abby, where are you at? Oh, there you are. Hey, baby. <laughs> yeah, come on. You want to see the catwalks later? All right. No. Okay. It still doesn't work. We're taking things slow. She gives me my own bedroom. Anyway, so you can, you can remove your mask. We're married. You know, if, if, okay, that's fine. All right. Well, okay. Well, anyway, so... Um, we're going to go to counseling after this, but uh, so <laughs> I love my wife, and I know she loves me. Uh, Abby, a couple of months ago, had seen this video where like, it was a challenge of something that women could do and men can't do, and it's that video where like, you're down on your knees, then you put your elbows down, and then you do this, and, like, you know, and like, apparently like, women don't fall over, men do fall over. And I'm like, yeah, right. That's not how it happens. I can do anything, right? So sure enough... If you watch the both of us do this, Abby's like, okay, so go on your knees. I'm like, okay, yeah, this is silly. I can do this. She's like, okay, now go ahead. Put your, put your elbows on the ground. Oh, please, Abby, I can do this. I'm a man. You know? She goes, now go ahead and put your hands on your chin. And now, put one hand behind your back. And you see her doing it. And I really want to do it. But I can't. I can't even build the courage because I know what's going to happen. You know what I mean? Anyway, give her Abby a round of applause. You are everything I aspire to be. I love you so much. All right. I'm, ta I'm telling you, man, marriage is the best. But can you tell? So the funny thing is, is it, it didn't end there, right? There have been four or five times in the last few months where Abby walks into a room and I'm on the floor doing, oh, come on, just, just do it, Danny, just do it. She's like, what are you doing? You weren't made to be that, I guess, you know? I just couldn't do it. Sometimes when we see somebody receiving something or doing something or having something that we so desperately want, like we can't shake it. It ends in the most ridiculous ways. 
And it's metaphorical, but we kind of face plant on the ground. It's not good for us. It's not healthy for us to do that. Now, I am taming that jealousy and envy in that very simple example to ensure that it doesn't lead to a place of brokenness or hatred toward my wife. But think about the big things in life, right? Where we get so jealous and envious because someone got something we never believed we could get or because someone is getting something or achieving something or receiving something that we believe only people like us are entitled to. Well, that's hard to shake, right? Only people who look like me deserve to be treated a certain way. Of course, we don't don't say it like that. We say it a a lot nicer, you know? Well, I mean, that's just kind of the way that the world works. I deserve it, not them. But God looked at humanity. He looked at human beings and he said, very good. He didn't look at any one of us in particular and say, just you. Differently gifted. Differently blessed. All God's children. And Saul needed to learn that. But at first it sent him down this dark path. Quite literally it sent him down a path. He was on a road to Damascus. As I said, Paul was from Tarsus, and now he's on a road to Damascus. Saul's job was to travel to far places to capture, imprison, and kill Christians. And Damascus was very far from Tarsus, but it's nothing for him. He would do anything to hate these people. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues. Remember, he just saw what Stephen's, he just heard what Stephen said. He just saw Stephen look up to heaven and see and be filled with peace. He just saw Stephen right before he died when he was being stoned. The text also tells us that Stephen cries out, forgive them. He dies with this peace. It says that he dies like he's seeing the face of an angel. Brings out the worst in Saul. He had everything that he wanted. So Saul requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way um, he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. It sent him down a dark path. Now remember what he just saw. Remember what is fueling this journey that he's on. He is more furious toward Christians than ever. He is more furious toward anyone who would say that God comes to us than ever. And so he's on this road. He's on this path. What do you think he's doing? How much do you think he hates himself in this moment? How hard do you think he's trying? Do you think he's dove back into this meditation? Do you think he's focusing his mind? Do you believe he's telling himself, don't do the bad things anymore. Stop doing the wrong things. Stop doing the things you hate. Start doing the things God loves. Come on, just do it. If you do it, you can be someone that God loves and you can be welcomed in his presence and maybe you'll see his face. I'm going to do this, Saul says. I'm going to do this. I'm going to see God's face. I will do whatever it has to take. If a pathetic, peasant, Jewish man like Stephen can do this, why can't the great, righteous, educated, brilliant, uh, multilingual Saul do this? And as Saul's going down this road, Focusing, doing more. To his great surprise, a light shines down on him, the text tells us. A light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. And with his eyes, 
he's actually seeing the face of God. And to his utter shock, disbelief, and perhaps horror for a moment, he realizes the face of God is the face of Jesus. The poor Jewish man, they crucified on a cross and rose from the dead. And Jesus says to him, I'm Jesus, and I'm the one you're persecuting. What happened in Saul's heart? Everything changed. His whole world got flipped, turned upside down. Perhaps in God's eyes, it was turned right side up. The horror, the shock, the terror, the awe, all over his heart. I'm seeing God, and it's the man that I'm killing people for. He saw God. And clearly it wasn't anything that he did because what he was doing was was persecuting this God. But I wonder what he thought of. Did he think about the childhood God that he didn't know but read about and talked about? Were all the prophecies torn into pieces and put back together in a whole new way? Did he see that the God that he longed so badly to be welcomed by had come to him? What did he see? Changed everything in his heart. Saul, a man who hated, despised, was killing a group of people, changed everything about his life. It says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It does not sound like the same person. This is Paul talking. When I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness. I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone. I'm not jealous. I'm not envious. I will not be led to brokenness. I will not be led to hatred. I find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. His doing is looking a lot different these days. Because his greatest nightmare came true. His greatest nightmare was that he would never be able to do enough to be welcomed by God. But the dream he never dared to dream came true too. And it's that God would cross the universe to see him. Do you know God crosses the universe to see you? Start with who God's called you to be and it'll change everything you do. For Saul to turn to Paul, it was Jesus' calling for him. Jesus sought out for Saul. He seeks out for you too. It's interesting, when Jesus addresses Saul, he says, Saul, Saul! He says the name twice. 
You might think, you know, Saul heard his name, looked one way. He's like, no, Saul, I'm over here. But it didn't work like that with Jesus. There are only very few times when Jesus says someone's name twice in the scriptures. And it seems to be very intentional. It's not just to get somebody's attention, but it's to express his own longing for that person. There's one story that's told about how Jesus is with two sisters. There's Martha and Mary. And Mary is simply enjoying the presence of God. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus, embracing the entire personification of love. She's just being And then there's her sister, Martha, who's running around the house trying to make everything perfect. She's trying to do everything so that she can be someone significant that would have a house appropriate for God to walk into. And Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha. He says her name twice. This longing. I want you to stop doing. And instead, I just want you to be who I made you to be. If your life is all about who you can become someday, it will be defined by what you are doing and not doing today. But if your life is about whose kid you are, you can finally start living today. God calls you good. You don't have to do something to be someone. God calls you good. I could preach this sermon for the rest of my life, and I don't think I'd ever get tired of saying it. God calls you good. Do you call yourself good? Do you believe your name deserves to be spoken by the Almighty God? God's actions and God's movements and God's words don't depend on what you think, though. You could do anything, you could do something good, you could do something horrible. And yet God has this capability to do something that we as humans have such a hard time doing. He always goes back to the beginning. I've made you in my image. I see you and I see me. Whose kid are you? Martha, what are you doing? Before Peter denies Jesus three times, we've talked about this a couple of times now, Jesus predicts this by calling Peter his old name, and he says twice, Simon, Simon, I know what you're going to do. I still long for you. When Jesus is on the cross, he says, Eloi, Eloi, which means my God, my God. He's longing for his dad. And to paraphrase it, he basically asks, what are you doing? What's happening? But he allows all of it to happen. Because on the cross, Jesus embraces and wears our greatest fears. Our fear of loneliness, our fear of abandonment, fear of insignificance, our fear that we'll never be somebody because you just can't do enough. 
Jesus wears that weight on the cross. He welcomes that because he's God's kid and he came to make us remember that we are God's kid. He's come to break open the doors that we thought were locked. He says, I've, I've got the key. I've unlocked it. It's bringing me such great joy to welcome you back into this family. Come on, sit down, eat, enjoy me. Remember who your father is. Stop doing everything. Stop working out in the field. Come down, sit, be with your family. So he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Everything bad that's ever happened to you, everything wrong someone's ever done to you, Jesus says, I felt that. It happened to me too. Were you lied to? He was lied to. And not just in some sort of relatable, ambiguous, far off way. No, the lie that was said to you was said to him. Saul wasn't going around arresting Jesus. He didn't physically kill Jesus, but Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Has anyone ever hit you? They hit Jesus too. how close he wants to be with you, that everything that happens to you happens to him. And everything that we do that hurts humanity hurts God. There's been a lot of injustice in the world lately, hasn't there? Every act of injustice is injustice toward God. But God doesn't settle with injustice. God doesn't sit up in heaven and keep score and get jealous and feel envious, which leads him to anger and then a broken relationship and then hatred. God is a just God. He will make right everything wrong that's happened to you. He will make right everything wrong that you've done to somebody else, too. It's just how good he is. That's your dad. Those are the genetics you've inherited. And he's not going to stop. He will not stop until all of his dreams, all of his purposes are accomplished. He's not going to stop. He's a big dreamer. Do you dream? What do you dream about? Are your nights filled with terror? Or are they filled with awe and wonder? Are your nights the kind of nightmares that make you wonder if God will ever love you? That make you wonder if you could ever do enough to be acceptable before God? God's dreams will come true. God's dreams are coming true. 
His dream is crossing the universe to stand before you and say, you're so very good. And he won't stop. Toward the end of the Bible, there's an author who gets a vision of heaven. And after this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne of, uh, in front of the throne before the Lamb. Vast crowd, too great to count, every nation, tribe, all people, every language. He's not going to stop. He's not going to stop. Do you hear him calling your name? He'll say it twice. Do you hear him calling your name? He knows your story. He knows the depths of your heart. How quick are we to eliminate someone from our lives, from our culture, because we see one thing. He sees everything. He knows all the depths that led you to that place to do that thing. He knows it for you. He knows it for the person next to you. He knows it for the person across the hall from you. He knows it for your parents. He knows it for your siblings. He knows it for your family who's gone before you. He knows it for the family who's going to come after you. And he's not going to stop until he can call each one of us by name. And he's named you his child. And he's called you good. We're going to go ahead and stand and we're going to sing this last song. And my invitation to you is to simply lean, we're going to sing these words, lean back to lean back into the loving arms of your God who embraces you in the best way and cares for you, not based on what you've done, but because of whose kid you are. You don't have to do to be welcome here. You don't have to do to be approved of by God. your life is about what you want to become, it will always be about what you are doing or not doing now. But if your life is about whose kid you are, you can finally start living. Lean back and live. Amen.